I want to ask you to go to that chapter in the Old Testament if you don't mind doing that. 2 Kings chapter 5 will pretty much uh, stay right there through the course of the next few minutes as I get to talk to you guys about this uh, story that we read in this text. I welcome every one of you again. Hope you're doing well and enjoyed a, a good weekend perhaps. And uh, It's always good to see you. We, uh, we welcome every one of you. I, uh, as some of you know, I... I studied, I, I studied math for, for a bit in college, and um, I, like, I, I liked math, you know, and, I, and I, still, I still like it, don't do much of it anymore, and probably forgotten most of it. But one of the things I liked about math at the time, and I still like about math, is, is it, it's logical, you know, it makes sense. It's, if, you, if you know the formula and you plug in the right values, you'll get the right answer. It's, it's, you know, you can kind of make it connect the dots. It's, if you've got, you know, the base and height of a triangle, you can figure out the other side of the triangle, you know. Uh, you, you've got just certain things about it that are pretty cool. Uh, and, and, I, and I like that about it. I like the, just the logic. I mean, some of you are, are math people, you know, math teachers and people with math degrees and engineers and all that. And I, you would know on, on a greater level what I'm talking about here is that it just, you know, it makes sense. And, that, and I, I think it's interesting. There are people today doing mathematics as evidence for God. You, you may have seen some of that, that just uh, the consistency of, of the physical nature of the universe and the mathematics and, and all that didn't, didn't just come about by chance. It had to be some sort of a higher power who created the world with these constants. Anyway, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. Um, but not everything works like that, you know. Life's not like that all the time. You can't, you can't plug in the formula. You, you, you don't know how things are going to work out always. You've got the situations that you're dealing with. Um, I took a class after I got done with that and realized I wasn't going to do math. I took some classes in communication. And um, one of the classes I took was a class on, I think the class was called Contemporary Rhetorical Theory. And in that class... One of the assignments was we went, I was taken in Tuscaloosa, and one of the assignments was we went to this piece of art that was there, if I remember right, it's, it's right there in front of the McFarland Mall there in Tuscaloosa, and there's this um, uh, something there, I don't even remember what it was, it made a big impression on me, obviously, but we, um, the thing we were supposed to do was we were supposed to write a paper on what that piece of art represented, and I had been doing math for a while, and and, and, and that was like a foreign idea. I don't want to tell you, I don't want to interpret that piece of art. You know, just tell me what it means, or let me figure out what, it, what it's supposed to mean. Like, it's got a meaning, right? It's got a, it's got a meaning, and, 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 and that's what we need to talk about. We need to talk about what it objectively means, you know, but, but that was a completely foreign idea for that kind of class, and what they were expected, what we were expected to do is we were supposed to, like, sort of interpret it. This is, this, is what it, this is what it means, or this is what it might mean, or here, here are these. It was kind of like a vague, subjective kind of experiencing, and that didn't make as much sense to, to my mind that I can just come up with some sort of a meaning, you know, for it. Now, I say all that because I want to make, I want to make this, this point about faith, and, and I think we're going to draw this out. I think there's, there's something to be said for the story that we're going to read in 2 Kings 5 is that that sometimes when it comes to a relationship with God, 
it is a very logical thing. I don't think we, I, I'm not the kind of person who says that faith is just a leap in the dark, you know, you just hope that it's true or, you know, you've got this inner desire for something and so that makes it true or whatever, that it's just kind of these different experiences. I don't, I don't believe that's the case. I believe that there are logical reasons to believe in God. I believe that there, there are real pieces of evidence that point to some sort of a higher power, you know, a designer. A design implies a designer. I, I believe that. But, but... Walking by faith doesn't always work like that. Walking by faith, you don't always connect the dots. You don't always have um, a reason for everything to be as it is. You don't always know how things are going to work out. So if I do this and if I do that, I'm going to get X result. You know, if I do, if I do um, A and B, I'm going to get C. You know, that life doesn't always work like that. Now, 2 Kings 5 is a neat story. It's a story about Naaman, you know, this, this leper. And I want to just kind of walk through it with you for a minute to talk about the, the basic facts of the story. An incredible makeover, an extreme makeover of this, this guy. It would have, would have been a horrible thing to have been in his situation. Second uh, Kings 5, we didn't read all this earlier. Uh, we just read two or three verses of it. I want to go back and read a little bit to set the stage for this. And I want you to point, I want to point out a couple of things here. Second Kings 5, if you're there with me, look at the first couple of verses here. Naaman, a commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now, so here's, here's the thing about him. The, the language that's used about him is pretty expressive. He's a commander of the army of the king of Syria. He was a great man with his master. He was in high favor because the Lord had given victory to Syria. And he was a mighty man of valor. Depending on how you count that, you got like four or five pretty strong statements made about Naaman. And he's an impressive guy. He's a successful man. He's regarded highly by the king of Syria. He has uh, done some pretty amazing things. He's got all, his resume is pretty neat. I mean, you look at his, his, uh, his CV and it's pretty impressive. But the last verse, the last part of the verse, the end of verse one, in a way undoes it all. And it doesn't. But in a way, it says, okay, he's done all this stuff, but you need to know this thing about him, too. He was a leper. That said a lot. Now, leprosy, we don't know for sure what this means. Um, and you probably know that leprosy is a word in the Bible that's used to talk about some sort of a skin disease or a neurological disease. And that's true. It, it is. It's, you go back to Leviticus 13, and you'll read about what, um, what the law said about Leprosy, about skin diseases, how you're to treat them and all that. We don't know for sure what it means here in 2 Kings 5. It probably does mean some sort of a skin disease. But there are different kinds of skin diseases that apparently fell under this umbrella designation called leprosy. And different kinds of neurological diseases, different kinds of, uh, of, extreme, of extremity, you know, how, how bad they are and all that. Apparently, because Naaman was still able to go into the presence of the king that he, he didn't have the kind that completely ostracized them from society. But having said that, the fact that he was a leper, at the very least, it meant that Naaman's life had been, had been limited in some ways, that, that he had all of these accomplishments, but they were dampened by the fact that he had this thing called leprosy. It was a big deal, especially to people reading this in a Jewish context. They would have read that and thought, well, that makes everything else un, uh, you know, not worth really anything. Now, look what, 
you know, you go on down here, and there's something happens here. I'll come back to this in a minute. But he hears through one of his servants that there is a prophet in Israel who can heal leprosy. And so he goes through some political movements on the part of his king. He ends up going to Elisha. Elisha's the name of the prophet. And Elisha tells him, let's go down and read, starting in verse 8. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. Now, just stop there just for a second. You know, go and wash. This is pretty simple. Uh, it doesn't require any great acts. I mean, it's not hard to do. Just go and wash in the Jordan River. You know, backing up from there, how he found out about this was that he had this servant, this little girl, verse 2, she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. So his wife had a little girl who was a servant, and she said to her mistress, there's a prophet in Samaria who can cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his boss, the king, that this is what I've heard. The king says, I'll send you with a letter. You go and you talk to this man and see what can be done. And so when he goes to Elisha, verse 8, uh, well, Naaman came, verse 9. Elisha, I just think this is fascinating. Verse 10, Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, so Naaman never actually saw Elisha, not at this point. He just goes there and Elisha sends out this messenger and the messenger's response is pretty simple. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Now pause there for a second. Would you have done this? Would, would the story, if you had been Naaman, would the story have ended differently? Would the next verse have said, but your name, well, maybe it wouldn't even use the word but there. It would just say, um, and your name promptly went to the Jordan River, washed in it seven times and came out of it and was cleansed. End of story. I'd like to think if, if this is talking about Chuck and not Naaman, that it would have said that about Chuck, that Chuck, Chuck didn't know why in the world he's supposed to wash in the River Jordan, but he did it anyway. I, 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 end of story, you know, chapter 6, let's move on. I'd like to think that that might be the way it would have worked out. I don't know for sure, because I'm not there, you know, and you aren't there. We don't know for sure how this would have worked out, but going and wash in the River Jordan seems pretty simple. Now, one, you know, a couple things about, about this. You, you may need to know about the politics and stuff of it. Syria and Israel were at odds. They were at war. In fact, it starts out by saying that Syria had gone on a raid in Israel. So, so they're at odds. There's tension there. There's tension between the king of Syria and the king of Israel. So you got that thing going on. And so there's, there's also some racial tension here between the Syrians and the Israelite people. Uh, there's a, a bit of pride here. Uh, you, you know, his response down below is, why can't I go home and wash in one of the clean rivers, essentially, uh, in, my home, in my homeland? The Jordan River, when it was at flood stage, which it probably was in this text... When the Jordan River got at flood stage, it was a nasty river. It was, it was muddy, dirty, uh, if, uh, overflowing its banks, and the, and the mud would get pretty bad. And so it might be that Naaman looked at the Jordan River and thought, I, you know, I don't see the point of this. That, that doesn't make any sense. What is that dirty water going to do for my skin disease? It doesn't make any sense. I can go home and wash in a clean river. If it's about a river, let me get, let me get a different river. I don't know. I don't know what you and I would have done. And I don't know exactly why Naaman didn't want to do it. But he didn't want to. And then we read, in fact, the next part of this. In verse 11, but Naaman was angry, and he went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the rivers of 
the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And again, I don't know exactly what's going on here. Some pride, probably. And maybe he didn't really believe that this is going to happen. This is a silly thing. This is snake oil. You know, this is just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. What's washing up? I've, I've taken a lot of baths in my day, and it hadn't got, made the skin problem go away. And so I don't understand this. Maybe it was that he didn't fully believe. Maybe it was a pride thing. I'm, I'm a Syrian, not an Israelite. I want to go back home and do it in one of the rivers of my home nation. I, we, don't, we don't know for sure what's going on in Naaman's mind, but certainly there is some pride. Now, interesting thing, verse 13. His servants came near and said to him, His servants... We'll come back to that in a second. My father, this is verse 13. It is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has the ex, he said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times into Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. You know, that's pretty cool. And servants, like our master has lost his mind. This doesn't make any sense at all. Why didn't he didn't just do it? Maybe it won't work. Maybe it will work. But it's a very simple thing to do. You might as well try it out. You came all the way here. You got all this money. We've read, heard this thing about the prophet. Maybe, you know, why not, why not just go ahead and do it? Why not go ahead and wash in the Jordan River seven times? doesn't make sense for you to let your pride keep you from doing this. doesn't make any sense at all. Now, they say this with humility and with, with uh, certainly a servant spirit. But, but they say basically, oh, you know, come on. It's not a big deal. Just go do it. The worst thing that happens is... You take a bath in a dirty river, all right? You know, you're not any worse off. It doesn't make your leprosy any worse than it was, right? So just, so why don't you just do it? That's so he does it. Comes out the seventh time, he's clean. Leprosy's gone away. Now, we're not going to study the rest of the chapter. It's pretty interesting as well. Uh, because what, what he does here, essentially, is he goes, he goes to Elisha at this point. And he says, man, I, I, I want to worship your God. And, and I brought all this money and stuff, and I'll give you this money. And you can have it because I'm really, really grateful. And Elisha, the man of God, the prophet says, no, I'm not going to take any money for it. This is not my work. It's the work of God. I'm not going to take any money. And so, essentially, he, he goes back home. But, but he, says, he says, I want to take some dirt with me because... I want to take some Israelite dirt with me because what I'm going to do with this dirt is I'm going to build an altar to your God. And, and though I'm not in Israel, I want to worship the God of Israel. And in order to do that, I want to take some of that Israelite, good Israelite dirt and I want to build me an altar of it back in Syria out of that dirt and I'm going to use that altar to worship your God. So he's, he's, this, is a, this is a conversion story basically when he goes back home. But I want to think about this for you and me. Okay? Let's talk about this text a little bit. What, what do we... What do we learn from, from our story? Here's one thing I want you to think about. Is that sometimes there's a tendency for you and me, all of us, all of God's people, anywhere, any place, to think that, that, that God's mostly concerned about us. Mostly concerned about us. He likes us a lot. You know, we're his people. And he's very thankful that we're with him. And, and he's our God. It's, it's almost like like a tribal kind of God. Not that any of you would do that, but there's a tendency for us to kind of think God's, God's like us, and he's, he's our God. He's, he's us, you know? And, and we can do that in an American sense sometimes, like he's the God of America. He, he likes, I mean, he likes all the nations, but he likes America a little bit better, you know, you know that kind of thing. We wouldn't actually say that out loud, but maybe we think it a little bit. You know, he, I mean, yeah, he, he likes Iraq. He loves Iraq, but you know, if we're being honest... He likes us a little bit more than he likes Iraq. You know, you know what I mean, right? Yeah, so <clears throat> stuff has gone on over there. <clears throat> Certainly he's a little bit unhappy with those folks. 
different parts of the world. So there's, there's that kind of tendency. We know Israel had that. Israel was very much into this. We're, we're God's favorite child. We're the, we're the favorite. And yeah, he may love in some, some sort of abstract way the people of Syria, but he doesn't love them as much as he loves us. So there are a lot of these stories in the Old Testament, like this one, where God wants his people to know that when he made the promise to Abraham, remember this? God made a promise to Abraham. I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to bless all the nations through you. I'm going to bless the world. I'm going to bless all the nations through you. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, Israel forgot about that quite a bit. They forgot about that. They thought, well, yeah, he may, may love the other nations, but he especially likes us. He's our God. And, and so the, you got these stories here. And the reason I know this is in Luke 4. You might, you don't have to turn there. You might make reference to it and go back and look at it. But in Luke 4, Jesus gets up to preach at a synagogue in his hometown. And, um, and when he gets up to preach, he talks to the folks, uses the text there in Isaiah, I think it is. But then he goes on and he says to the people, he says, remember that story of Naaman, the Old Testament? They remembered it. He said, in that time, in that time, talking about 2 Kings 5 time, in that time, God did not heal any lepers. He didn't heal any lepers in Israel. He only healed a leper in Syria. That's Jesus' point. They take Jesus out, and they're done with him. They're done with him. In Luke chapter 4, they want to kill him. They want to kill Jesus because he is saying that God at that time was more concerned about the lepers in Syria than he was about the lepers in Israel. And so, you know, you, you put that together. Jesus is interpreting this text for us, and he's helping us to see that, that God is a God who's concerned about the Syrians just as he is about the Israelites. And you've got stories like that. Um, Jesus also says in that same text, another story about Elisha is that, that God went outside of Israel to help a widow who needed some help, and God went outside of Israel to help her. There's a, there's a tendency here for us to, again, for us to think that, that maybe, maybe God is our exclusive possession. Not that we would do that out loud, say that out loud, but maybe we think it a little bit. And so in, in our text like this one, one of the takeaways from this, especially when we've got Jesus reading this text this way, is for us to remember that we are to be God's people who help. We, we are to be God's people who are a blessing to all the nations. To all the nations. To all the people groups. Everybody. This church, I think, understands that. And consequently, that is why we, we, as a church, more than almost any church I know, are very, very concerned about taking the gospel outside of our borders to other people groups in order to share the gospel with them. It applies in a lot of different ways, of course. And you and, you and I, as God's people, just need to be reminded of this. When we see somebody who doesn't look like us and doesn't act like us and doesn't talk like us, maybe their skin color is different from ours, maybe they speak a different language, or maybe they speak a different dialect, and maybe they have different cultures and different customs and different religions, but God loves that person equally. He loves that person. He loves him. He loves her with the same depth that he loves us with. There's no difference there. You know, this, um, Jesus read this text that way. So I'm not stretching here to, 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 to try to make this say something that doesn't. In Luke 4, Jesus says to, to an audience that thought God was theirs, he said, wait a second, you're skipping over some parts of the Old Testament. You're skipping over the story of Naaman, for example, wherein God showed he was, he was, he was working outside of, uh, of our borders, you know, to love people and to help people. All right, here's the second thing. A little bit more subtle here. Look at this. This is fascinating to me. Three times in this story, God uses people 
who have no power and no voice. Look at this. Look at this. Um, back in the first part. Well, let me ask you this. You read this, or we read it. How did Naaman find out about Elisha, the prophet, who could potentially heal him? How did, how did that word get to Naaman's ear? That was the little, little girl, right? The little slave girl. She coincidentally, not coincidentally, providentially, she had been taken, kidnapped, stolen from Israel on one of Naaman's raids. And he took this little girl who's, I mean, this is a bad place to be in for this little girl. He had given her to his wife. So she was his wife's little servant girl. And that's about as bad a position as you can be in. You have been taken away from your family. You've been put into a foreign country. You've been put in a position where you're a servant to somebody, and you're, you know, powerless. I mean, this, you, don't, you don't get any, you don't really get any, uh, in, into a position that's less powerful than this one. And that is how Naaman heard about Elisha. That's example number one. She said, verse 3, to her mistress, I wish my Lord were with the prophet in Samaria. He would cure him. That's number one. Number two. How did the message about dipping in the Jordan River get to Naaman? I mentioned this earlier. It's right there in the middle of the story. And this probably flew all over Naaman that this is the way it happened. Naaman's used to people doing what he wants them to do. Naaman's used to getting to talk to whoever he wants to talk to. Naaman's used to getting invited to talk to powerful people, you know. And so he goes to this prophet Elisha. Who's this guy anyway? You know, who's Elisha? And, uh, and before he even gets there, Elisha sends out a messenger to him. I <laughs> just love that because, you know, Elisha is not going like, to go out there and bow before this guy because he's a great general. He sends a messenger to him. And so Naaman doesn't even get to see the prophet. He, he's greeted by this servant, this messenger, who tells him what he needs to do. I think that probably aggravated Naaman. How dare you send a messenger out to me? I'm more important than that. You come to me yourself, you know. You come talk to me directly. Instead of sending a messenger out here to tell me to go wash in a dirty river. Come on. I don't know if that's what's going on in Naaman's mind, but I guess, I'm guessing it is. So he sent a messenger. That's, that's, example, that's example number two. All right, then example number three here is this. How was Naaman ultimately convinced that he needed to wash in the dirty Jordan River? Remember that part of the story? How was he convinced of that? He was convinced of that by whom? Well, this is verse 13. By his servants. That's fascinating. His servants came to him and said, Lord, Master, uh, my father, they say, look, you know, you ought to do this. And he does it. Three things here. This is not coincidental. It's not just an incidental side note in the text here, especially when it occurs three times in the text. Now, you've got a great man, Naaman. you got two kings mentioned, the king of Syria, and you got the king of Israel. So you got two kings the great commander, and then you got the, the great prophet Elisha. Those, those four men are mentioned. They're in cer certain positions of power, political or prophetic or, or whatever, positions of power. The three people who do most of the work here are the little servant girl, the messenger of Elisha who deliver the message to Naaman, and the servants of Naaman who tell him, hey, you just need to go ahead and do this. Here, here's, a, here's a takeaway from this. God uses those who are powerless to accomplish His will quite often. God, God honors. When you got people who are in positions of, um, of weakness, God honors their position by giving them opportunities to serve. And maybe sometimes we, we struggle with that. Maybe some of us in this room right now think, you know, we're, we're speaking from, we're acting from a position of weakness. 
that because of society, because of being marginalized, because of our lack of opportunity, because of lack of privilege or whatever it might be, or we haven't had, we haven't had the, the opportunity that we wish we had had, maybe that God doesn't care about us, you know? And I think one of the things that, that comes through in stories like this in 2 Kings 5 is that God is especially concerned about those who have little power and that God will continue blessing them and God will continue using people in positions such as these to speak his word. And all three of these, the servant girl and the, and the messenger of Elisha and the, and the servants of Naaman, all three of them spoke the word of God from positions of weakness, but God used them in order to accomplish his will in the story. Isn't that pretty neat? Isn't that pretty cool? I love that aspect of the story. Here's a third one. This is the last one, all right? Third one is this. goes back to where I started. <clears throat> Can't always connect the dot when God tells us what to do. Can't always connect the dots. What I mean by that is we don't always know the reasons why. Uh, from, a, from a very real perspective, washing the Jordan River had absolutely nothing to do with healing of leprosy. Nothing to do with it whatsoever. Nothing special about the waters of Jordan. They didn't have some miraculous quality. They weren't some enzymes in the water or whatever it might be. Nothing in the water that make it, to make it especially powerful with the treatment of leprosy. It wasn't anything in it. You know, we know that. And yet Naaman wasn't cleansed of his leprosy until he did it. Uh, there, you know, I think there's a way of reading the Bible where we, we come away with this, that a lot of times God... Um, God tells people to do things and doesn't tell them why to do it. You know, Abraham, leave, leave your homeland and go to a land that I will show you, Genesis 12. Abraham got up and went. He got up and went. Now, Abraham had missteps quite a bit. He, he didn't always do what he should have done. But that was one occasion where God said, hey, I want you to leave, and he left. He told Abraham near the end of his life, Genesis 22, he said, I want you to go to a certain place I'm going to show you, and I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac, the, son of, the one you love, the son of promise. I want you, I want you to sacrifice him. Abraham got up the next morning and he, and he went and intended to do it. <clears throat> hey, uh, Israel, I want you to go to the, to the city of Jericho and I want you to march around that city once a day for six days and seven times on the seventh day and blow your trumpets really loudly and the walls are going to fall. <clears throat> what kind of military sense did that make? Any? Anything special about marching around? Nothing at all. And yet, when they did it, God blessed them. I mean, you can, go, you can almost go through the Bible again and again and again. And it's, it's like God wants, God, wants to, God wants to know about your faith and my faith. Do they only trust me when they know how everything's going to work out every step along the way? That's not real faith, is it? That's not real faith. It's not real faith when I say, okay, God, I'll go with you, and I'll do what you want me to do, but, but I want to make sure that um, I, I know every step along the way how this is going to work out. I want you to assure me everything's going to be like I want it to be. At every step. Is that faith or not? There's, there's a sense in which the story of Naaman teaches us something about obedience, you know, that we do what God tells us to do even when we don't see the connection. We can't connect all the dots. We just, it's not like a mathematical equation. We can plug it in. We get the right answer that, that we, we know we can fit all this stuff together, but we do it because God said to do it. There's a sense in which we don't really know what kind of faith we have until we're willing to step out in faith acting consistently with who we believe God to be, not because we can see this path is all laid out very clearly for us along the way, right? That's biblical faith. It's not a leap in the dark necessarily. I'm not saying that faith is just it's, you know, hoping for something you, that may or may not be true. I believe there's real evidence for the existence of God and who He is, right? But faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. 
Hebrews 11, verse 1. And then the writer goes on in that chapter and he says, By faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, Abraham went out. By faith, Isaac. By faith, Moses. By faith, so-and-so. By faith, so-and-so. And what it was in every one of those examples is so-and-so did what God told him or her to do even when he or she didn't know how it was all going to work out. And only when Naaman was willing to step out in faith and wash in the Jordan River did he become a person whose skin was clean again, right? So let me ask you something. I'll close with this. Let me ask you something. Is there something going on in your life right now where you believe that God is leading you to do or not do something? But up until this point, at least, you have refused to obey him. Why is that? Is it because you don't fully believe that he is? Is it because you don't really trust that he will take care of you? I want to suggest to you that this story, as well as the entire biblical story, is one that says this. The most important thing about our journey of faith is growing in our ability, growing in our willingness to step out and to do what God says to do, even when we cannot see everything in the future. And we cannot intellectually make all of the dots connect in every way. Go and wash in the Jordan River, Naaman. Go wash. And he was cleansed when he did that. Maybe there's a way in which this relates, though I don't think the text is talking about it specifically, even to the command to be baptized. Perhaps. God has given us the reason. It connects us. It shows us. It shows us. We, we emulate what Jesus did. He died, was buried, and resurrected. We die to self. We are buried in water, and we are resurrected. But maybe there's, maybe there's the sense in which it connects like this. Somebody might say, I don't want to be baptized, or I don't see how baptism fits into it, or I don't, I don't understand why God would do it that way. You know, at a point, lots of points, we, coming to faith in Christ, we say to him, Lord, I'm going to do what you've asked me to do, what you've told me to do. I'm going to do your will. I'm going to obey you. I'm going to wash in the river, so to speak. Maybe that speaks to you this morning. You come here as one who, you believe in Jesus Christ, but you haven't yet, up until this point at least, have not yet been willing to say, I want to be baptized into Jesus Christ. We invite you today to wash in the river, so to speak. Have your sins washed away by his blood as a public demonstration of the faith that's in your heart and a public reenactment of what Jesus did to make salvation possible. You can be baptized even this morning. Uh, maybe you need to come back to, to God. Your life has not been lived consistently with your profession of faith lately. And you want to ask for the prayers of your church family here. We'll do anything we can to help you spiritually. Um, walking by faith. That's what the Bible's all about, really, for us. If you need to respond, I hope you'll come. Let's stand. Let's sing the song.